Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, mathematician Podrick McCarran joins me to talk about another amazing brand chapter. If you'd like to send me feedback, book at baldmove.com. Without further ado, here is Dr. Podrick McCarran. Podrick, is this the most magical? I mean, I. And of course, we've got the prologue, which is sort of rife with magic, but it feels like this chapter is most overtly talking about the ice magic or the northern magic or the old gods magic more robustly than any chapter we've met so far. Yeah, and Lewin also mentions that he tried to do magic, as many in the Civil mm-hmm. have done, and he shows him his Valerian steel ring. Uh, we get almost absolute confirmation now that Bran's wolf dreams are him warging into summer, whereas previously, especially if you're a first-time reader, you mightn't know that that's exactly what's happening, mm-hmm. that he, as soon as he sleeps, he goes into summer, whereas uh, Jojen explicitly points out that uh, he felt Bran in there, and Bran knows this is true, but tries not to admit it. Yeah, a lot. it's a short chapter, but... Uh, uh, a lot of, I suppose, reveals specifically about magic. I would imagine that most people caught the clues, right? That he's he's warging into to summer. But in case you needed it, you know, in case you you needed it spelled out, we actually have two Krannic men in the story who seem to have a closer connection with the old ways or the religion of the children of the forest. And who are absolutely going to provide counter information to the foil that is Maester Lewin. Mm-hmm. We were seeing this kind of magic only through the perspective of a child who doesn't quite understand what's happening. And so, of course, that means the readers are not understanding what's happening. But now that Mira and Jojen are in the story, they're a guide not only for Bran, but for the reader as well. Yeah, and lots of talk of green dreams and green. Up to now, everything has been, you know, red for fire and mm. blue for your whites and ice, I suppose. But now suddenly you've got this green dreams and green seers. I think it was mentioned before, but now it's much more explicit. Even like Jojen is wearing all green, mm-hmm. including his leather boots. And his eyes are mentioned, I think, both in the last chapter and this chapter as being the color of moss. Hmm. That's interesting. So, um, I, I don't know. I guess maybe I'm being mad here, but I, I've often, I've always had this sort of idea that the colors are significant. And so, what would you consider the primary colors? Actually, just sorry, a bit of a interlude here. <laughs> what would I consider primary colors? Yeah, or just in general, when people say primary colors. Oh, I, I think uh, I, I'm remembering my art theory class, and the mm. three primary colors are red, blue, and yellow. That's right, yeah. So that's very much um, from pigments, right? In physics, with light, uh, the three primary colors of light are red, green, and blue. Oh. Uh, so now, again, this is a little bit um, more of a concept than like a true force of nature or true fact of nature, I suppose. But um, in terms of like your CRT, uh, your old cathode ray tubes for, uh, you know, listeners who are over the age of 20. Um, they, that's RGB, the red, green, blue, and that's how you make all the different colors. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but in physics in general, uh, there'd be there'd be the three primary colors, and you can make um, by mixing those, you get other colors, and you mix three primary colors and three secondary colors, you get white. And this is quite different to with art with pigments, whereas if you with pigments, if you mix blue and yellow, you get green. Right. And if you mix uh, mix them all together, you get a gross brown. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> whereas with light, if you mix red and green, you get yellow. Interesting. Um, so um, because whites are very much and the ice is very much associated with being blue and dragons with being red i think this introduction of green to me brings in a sort of like uh i don't think it's coincidence that this is like a primary color of light and it's like the sort of like third strand of magic or something like this at least that's my uh my physics uh background yeah (laughs) no i like i like that a lot i think that if you hadn't said that i would have gone more of the the simplistic you know, this is earth magic. Earth, the color of earth is green. You know, that, that's really simple stuff like that. <laughs> let, me, let me go ahead and read the uh, synopsis for the show. Bran, Mira, and Jojen are playing with the wolves and talking about dreams. Bran does not want to talk about his own dreams and grows angry when Jojen won't stop. Summer and Shaggy Dog feel Bran's anger and chase the Kranich people up a tree until Hodor can chase the wolves off. Later on, Bran presses Maester Lewin about the children of the forest. Mira shares one of Jojen's green dreams that portends something about symbolic meat. We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints. Except, it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. (laughs) 
So, Dr. McGarren, uh, what do you want to talk about today? Um, I think I probably want to talk about Green Dreams and Bran being the winged wolf and what that might possibly mean. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, winged wolf is a sort of a book-only designation. He doesn't really get called the winged wolf in the show. No, but it, it is mentioned he will fly. I think possibly when he yeah, first forever. sees the three crows, that's uh, stated. Or maybe not the three crows, when he meets the Blood Raven. Yeah, I think that there is a lot of imagery of him flying. And of course, Bran is another word for crow or raven, right? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, let's talk about that. I wish I had um, more to say on this Wayne Wolf thing. I, it, really, <laughs> it really puzzled me when I read it because I suppose part of it is simply just as Jojen says, you are part of Summer and Summer is part of you. And then uh-huh. I, I'm assuming the wings is just because Bran probably becomes the next three-eyed crow. Is it is that all it is, or is it the fact that he's the winged wolf is that more significant? Is that does he is he not the three-eyed crow? Is he like I don't know a three-eyed winged wolf or something? Yeah, I mean, I yes, I think that it doesn't necessarily need to be more complicated than that. I feel like his name is Bran, and he's on his way to becoming the three-eyed raven or three-eyed crow. And so that creates a hybrid. And I mean, that's just how I read it anyway. Yeah, I suppose there's, there's a lot of chat about brown flying, isn't there? I, one of my friends uh, years ago said to me, her idea was that Bran was going to be one of the heads of the dragon. And that's where the flying is. I would love it if that was true. <laughs> and unlikely. I would love Bran to be, um, let's see here, more integral to the final battle than was depicted in the show. Indeed. Um, I, I don't know if I do see that happening. Do we know... Can dragons be warged? Do we even know that? Um, It's interesting. I don't... I don't think we do know that. I think uh, just recently, Martin gave an interview. This was sort of before House of the Dragon came out. Mm-hmm. And he said... I'm still kind of creating dragon magic as I go. And I'm not sure exactly how it all works. Um, So it sort of was something that he didn't quite have nailed down, according to this interview. Um, Now, there is a sense in which the Targaryens are kind of psychically connected to the dragons in a way that others are not. So I'm not sure I'm not sure if we're dealing with the same sort of thing as Bran and Wargs, but we here's what we do know that among Greenseers, Bran is going to be extremely talented. Yeah. So there's going to be the possibility of warging into Hodor. There's going to be the possibility of of doing things that may not seem possible, even for those people that know the mythology. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that's a possibility, but I would say it's very unlikely. I think it probably is more uh, Raven symbolism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about Jojen here. Um, Jojen kind of explains what a green dream is, how it's different than a, uh, another kind of dream. And... 
he seems to know things, certain things about the future. Mm. And he's adamant that they're right. His dreams, when he has a green dream, yes. it comes true and there's no averting it. And at one point, Mira says, you know, sometimes they come true and he's pretty defiant. No, there's no sometimes. Yeah. Um, And I think that this is the second indication that Jojen knows how he's going to die. Yeah. Because in a previous chapter, he said, like, today's not the day I die or whatever. And I think this, at least this is how I'm reading it, is that Mira doesn't want to accept that yet. But Jojen seems pretty confident about this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. He thinks that all his dreams are, he's convinced all his dreams come true. And there's no way of averting these. Um. Is the, did he say in the previous chapter as well? Because he's he only barely mentioned the previous chapter, but I guess it was through Summer's eyes, maybe was it? Well, I think in the previous chapter, he's you know she you know she's kind of cautioning him against the the wolves in the gods okay. wood, and he basically says, "I know today is not the day I die." So I think it's sort of hinted yeah. at. And um, then here he says it's the same thing, isn't it? When they before they climb up the tree, he's like, "There's no, I, I'm fine, yeah. I'm safe, <laughs> I'm not gonna die here." Right. So it's interesting to me that we have a character in the story. How do I want to say this? It's interesting that we have a character in the story that has a different relationship to time than all of the other characters. And I think that you, I mean, have also a different relationship with, you know, death or whatever. But if you know the future and if you're confident that you know certain things about the future, you act differently and you're motivated differently yeah i feel like there's a little bit of um almost an inconsistency or a sort of like resignment there isn't there it's like when he can see summer getting very angry and then shaggy dog joins and he's like ah there's no point in doing anything because i'm not going to die today but like by that logic why does he ever do anything (laughs) (laughs) well i mean he's motivated somehow he's motivated by these dreams he's like i need to know i i need to go up north i that that is my purpose in fact that his father commands him to go up north or whatever but then the question is what happens if he doesn't go up this creates one of these time inconsistencies for a character in the story you know that you have to go up north because you know because you've seen yourself up north but is this not just sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing yeah i mean it seems a bit like because he knows this is he's so convinced that this is going to happen there's no point in even trying to change it because you can't change it this is like has already happened it's just mm-hmm so you just you gotta go with that but just when explicitly he refused to do anything because he knew it was summer and shaggy dog weren't going to kill him it just made me think it's like well by that logic why are you are you ever going to run ever like you know you're looks like you're in danger i mean surely he must have thought well actually maybe if i uh the only reason i today is the day i'm not going to die is because i climbed this tree you know wouldn't he have thought that <laughs> Yeah, and of course, you know, this creates plot problems, for me at least, because, you know, what happens if he decides to go south? You know, is a great whale going to swallow him and carry him up north or something? I, I don't... All right, I'll just I'll just say it this way. We have a character in the story who has a different relationship with time, and it absolutely does have consequences for that character's motivation. Yeah. 
Now, I think that the way that to make that work is to make him care more about the life of Bran, the life of Mira, and the ultimate sort of you know greater good of the story than he does about himself. And that's I think that that's the only way to give that character motive at this point. Yeah, it's a tricky one. Like I'm always wary of using time travel as any kind of plot device because you do open yourself to a lot mm-hmm. of problems. I think in this case, because we know some semblance from the show what happens with Hodor, something else had to be introduced about time a bit earlier on, so it doesn't kind of come totally out of nowhere. Um, mm. but it's it's a bit like Jojen is almost a bit too much of a sort of um you know, uh, some kind of plot device like, right, here's this character that knows all this extra bit of information and is going to bring you to your destination. It takes a little bit of agency away from Bran and then by having this uh, knows how he's going to die, knows he has to go north, it takes a lot of agency away from anything that's going to happen in the next while, right? It's like... Mm-hmm. I feel, and to me, that's a little disappointing. This is one of those weird moments where it's disappointing on reread. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of this book, which is sort of the conceit of this podcast, is that Martin's writing tends to be very rewarding on mm. reread. Um, very rewarding on reread. Too many R's in that sense. Um, and yet, you introduce this time element. Now we're forced to look at Jojen a little bit differently. I guess the other thing to say about this is that you know, Mel looks into her fire and sees things in the future. But I think that it's revealed to us that she has these visions, but she doesn't quite know how to interpret them. And so that actually creates a bit of agency because just the, just the raw image doesn't necessarily tell you the whole story. Yeah, I think prophecy is a bit different because prophecy is always very vague and it can be interpreted in many ways. So I think that works quite well because it, you know, if um, with one of her visions, if she thinks this is Stannis, for example, is Azor High, and uh, we don't believe that because we think she's interpreting it wrong. But that's sort mm-hmm. of like, that has a bit of mystery to it. It's like, oh, who is this? So that's a bit more kind of exciting. Whereas a character simply going, well, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> no, he's right. still a little interpretive. Like uh, the next, the one he gives it to the end, for example, I actually had to go ahead and read the next chapter just to see. I couldn't remember what that meant or how that revealed itself. Yeah, yeah. I had to yeah. do the same. <laughs> and then um, with a few of his other ones, like, you know, the, his next one then in the next chapter is about, like, the sea coming to Winterfell and the sea, of course. Is... Right. You almost have, like, a, a proof of concept thing with the dream. It's like, yeah, let me tell you this dream about meat. Yeah. And eventually you'll see this come to fruition and that will provide credibility for the next and more significant dream that comes true. Yeah, and that that vagueness, again, like the sea coming to Winterfell, that's an interesting kind of, you know, an al- metaphor or even visual, like what does the sea coming mean? Um, and that's, again, interpretable, and it could be interpreted wrong. But Jojen, knowing how he's going to die, just seems a bit too much, you know, there should be some possibility that's wrong. Like, I really hope he is wrong and he just sees like he misinterpreted some vision or something. 
because uh, if it just is very blatant, it's uh, it is just disappointing. Mm. You like this to be much more interpretable, and like again, when he sees going forward, I think he'll he, he sees what he thinks is Reek killing Bran. It turns out it's you know the one of the Miller's boys, um, but he he's wrong in his interpretation of it. So hopefully, with uh, uh, many of his other ones, his interpretation is actually wrong, but the vision is true. That would be better. I do want to talk because the concept is introduced. I do want to talk about Jojen's fate. Yeah, of course. In the most recent published book. The plot that I found most interesting was Bran's encounter with uh, the Three-Eyed Crow. Mm-hmm. And the whole plot that's going on under the Great White Tree. And in that plot, Bran is sort of Jedi training. <laughs> and uh, he's learning about you know various warging and he's learning about the, the sort of he feels the impressions of previous wargs and the, the animals he inhabits he's learning to interpret what he sees in these uh in these uh, visions and Jojen completely drops out of the picture so it's it's almost like he exchanges one mentor for the next yeah and the implication that according to some fans is that the children of the forest have taken Jojen's blood or created some kind of paste out of Jojen's blood and fed it to Bran to kind of heighten his abilities. Because he's, at some point, he's given something to drink, and it's right after Jojen leaves the story. Yeah. Um, I'm, I, do you, Are you familiar with this? Yeah, Jojen paste. Yeah, uh, yeah, the Jojen paste theory? I haven't read it for a while now, but I, I, I'm familiar with it. Um, I, So I haven't read A Dance of Dragons since it came out. Um, so I do want to go back and reread, especially those brand chapters. I, I never really bought it. Um, I never really bought the Jojen Pay theory. Jojen is getting more and more depressed as it goes on. And the interpretation given for this is that it's because he's getting closer and closer when he's going to die. So he's mm-hmm. sort of withdrawing himself and getting more depressed. Yes, that's right. And I feel like that's so on the nose from Martin. He loves to like... <laughs> you know reverse everything um and as i said earlier with like you know jojen interpreting bran being killed by reek wrong i'm hoping that he's interpreting his own death to be wrong as well i feel like as a character who when he's introduced especially in this chapter talking to bran is like quite confident and uh integral to bran's growth it seems quite mad that when he actually gets to where they're going, he just gets depressed because he thinks he's going to die now. Like it just seems out of character for what, how he is in this chapter. I mean, I guess you could read that as he had a purpose it's and that is to get brand to the white tree. Um, and then once he gets brand to the white tree, it's like, he's lost his purpose. That's, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I'm just reading into that, but, um, yeah, that's probably, maybe that is exactly what it is. But if that is the case, I really hope it just means he does survive and has to find a new purpose. Like it's such a, um, like his character is almost just a total cliche. If he just is introduced to give Bran a bit more knowledge about green seeing, bring him to the next location where he meets a more uh-huh. powerful Jedi or, or Sith, as the case may be. And then, um, 
he just dies. That's it. <laughs> it seems so functional and so like on Martin, like you know, um, I'd be. That's why I don't believe it. Just because whenever he has these things that seem like inevitable, uh, they're always wrong, right? Or <laughs> they're always not true. You're always it's always somehow reversed. Uh, so that, and that seems to be the case here to me. That like uh, it seems so inevitable that Jojen's story is done and he has to die, that uh, Martin is not going to do that. Well, all right. So that's an interesting. It's an interesting sort of discussion of the sort of the narratological structure here, because you could look at Jojen in the way that we look at. Um, Yorin, uh, you know, Yorin, Yorin is just basically functions as a bridge for Arya to get Arya out of King's Landing and get her to the God's Eye. You know, he that that was his that's his whole narrative arc, um, and so he served his purpose, and then now he's he gets gets an axe to the forehead mm-hmm. and leaves the story. Um, and then and it could be that. Jojen serves a similar purpose. He's a bridge to get Bran from Winterfell to the White Tree. And once he serves that narrative purpose, he's done. It does seem a little bit odd that he foreshadows his death, and yet we don't see it happen. Well, yes. Like, you know, it could be the very first chapter of wins winter for all we know like you know and we totally don't see it happen yet like but if he is dead and it is Jojen pace that will surely be revealed to us Jojen's not just gonna mm-hmm. I, i'd be very surprised if he just uh not mentioned anymore and we have to infer that no and it could be that brand because brand has a different relationship with time he he gets kind of a fuller picture of what happened to him at the white tree in retrospect or something like that yeah I think a key difference between Yaron and Jojen is that Yaron is a character we actually already knew. He appears multiple times in A Game of Thrones. Um, he's at Winterfell at the start. The With feast. Tyrion, right? Yeah. yeah. And he has a, quite a specific purpose, which is like recruiting people for the wall. And, okay, he does have a fairly, you know, specific narrative purpose in terms of Arya's story. But we don't know where Arya is going at this point. We have no idea if she is actually just going to the Riverlands to reunite with Nymeria. She's going to continue to go north. We don't know what her plan is. And Yaren doesn't really need to die for Arya to leave. You know, there's um, mm. it's, 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 it's a little bit different. Whereas here, it's a character is introduced. They know ex- exactly in this chapter, like Jojen's introduced the end of the previous chapter. And this next chapter, he's like, right, we need to go north of the wall. Uh, here's all my spiel about magic, and once I get you there, I'm gonna die. It's a, it's a little bit, um, it's just, it's, it's so unsubtle. Like, yeah, it's, it's just, it's quite different to the Yaren story, who's a character, yeah, yeah pre existing character. You're right, you're right. And I, here's the other thing that the introduction of Yorin and Mira do for this story is that they're not just a bridge to get Brand a White Tree. They're also a bridge, a sort of a mnemonic bridge, back to Ned's early days mm. and his relationship with Howland Reed. Yeah. You know, Bran, of course, is still grieving the death of his father. He's, I think he's realizing, I think all of the Stark kids are knowing, like, how, 
we knew parts of our father's history. We knew we, you know, we we kind of had an idealized version of our father. We knew what our father kind of revealed to us about him. But there are certain parts of Ned's story that are mysterious. And um, I mean, notably for for John, right? Yeah. And of course, part of the mystery of Ned Stark is his like really close and fast friendship with Howlin' Reed. And so that connects us as readers to that backstory. Yeah, Howlin' Reed has got to be one of the most exciting characters we never meet <laughs> who's still alive. <laughs> we got to meet him at some point, right? We I mean... have to meet him at some point. He's mentioned too often uh-huh. for uh, not to just like not to be relevant. And then we meet his kids and they're continuing his legacy of being, you know, like Bran immediately loves the two of them. Like he wants them to be his, uh, to replace the phrase instead of them mm-hmm. being, uh, mm-hmm. you know, his, uh, whatever foster brothers. Um, so yeah, they're like, it's nice. It continues that legacy of the Reed Stark friendship tradition is, uh, really, really want to meet Holland Reed and figure out what happened with Arthur Dane, who Ned mentions is like the greatest swordsman he ever saw. And if it wasn't for Holland Reed, he would, uh, he would be dead. And we, we need Holland Reed to find out what happened to the Tower of Joy in terms of after that. Mm. You know, probably one of the only characters, uh, with the exception of maybe Willa or whoever John's um, wet nurse was, that could confirm what that if Leanna is indeed John's mother? Yeah, and in di- in addition to that, when we first meet Mira and Jojen. They swear fealty to Bran, but not using a known oath. Mm. They use this oath that seems to predate all of the known oaths, and in the oath, they use the phrase "ice and fire." Yeah, that struck me as well. And immediately afterwards, they use another one. Is it copper and iron? Is it earth and iron, maybe? Yeah, something like that. So earth and iron. So that made me think as well, like, is there, I mentioned at the start, this idea of, like, these three colors, like, you know, ice, fire, green for earth, I guess. And then there's also <laughs> iron, like, so. Um... <laughs> yeah, I think if if nothing else, it is sort of like red flag in your face. Hello, hello. These characters are integral to the outcome of the story. Yeah. The only characters that get to say ice and fire are on this ancient oath by the children of Howland Reed. And so there's, to me as a reader, it seems like I am supposed to think that these two characters are significant in a way that no other characters are significant that I've met so far. Yeah, I think that's uh, yeah, that, and they're presented as well quite like well, they they come with a lot of plot information, I suppose, mm-hmm. that we generally haven't been getting recently. We've been sort of living through current events, and now these characters are coming with some more things about um, well, as you mentioned with Ned's past, but also just the idea of magic and sort of the the children of the forest and the humans and the Andals and their path. So they come with a lot of plot information, a lot of uh, narrative. Okay, so in addition to that, Maester Lewin gives us a bit of backstory about the children of the forest. Mm. And he talk he Maester Lewin 
has some information about what Greensight is and how it's been lost from the world. But one of the things that he says, and I thought was really interesting, and I don't feel like I, I ever noticed this before, but he specifically says that with this kind of ancient knowledge, the children's green seers could occupy the bodies of animals. And he specifically says even fish. And I was thinking, oh, this is interesting because the glimpses of the chapters we've seen from Winds of Winter suggest this Lovecraftian Deep Ones mythology, suggesting that we are going to meet characters that have some kind of relationship with creatures of the deep. And I don't know what to... don't know what to make of all that, but I, I'm always on the lookout for thing, little clues that will give me hints about the deep ones. Okay, yeah, I I did flag that a little bit. You know, that is like, I actually have the page open here. It's like, uh, Green Seers also have powers over the beasts of the wood and the birds in the trees, even fish. So it's like a whole new sentence, even fish. But I just took it more as a sort of like, a throwaway, like, you know, they could even look at, like, you know, the fish is just so random and useless. Like, you know? <laughs> that was how I read it. <laughs> okay. Well, and of course, the ambiguity is, is where the fascination is, right? There. Yeah. Um, yeah, this whole, like, Deep Ones and the Merman and the Cthulhu stuff, that I, I see a lot of stuff of like this online. It's not something I, I, I haven't re- I don't think I've read all the Winds of Winter preview chapters. Um, so it's not something I'm actually that familiar with. So it wouldn't be something I'd be on the lookout for. It's mm-hmm. not something I... It's not something I'm expecting, really. Um, does seem... Yeah. Well, it is... I mean, it's it's mentioned in a few, like, um, Essos cultures. Okay. Uh, like, the Black Good of Kohor has some connection to this mythology as well. But, of course... Martin is not beholden to any particular mythology. And of course, we, we, as we've discussed before, Martin loves hybrids. You know, he might bring a little bit of Arthurian legend in and mix it with Shakespearean stuff and mix it with War of the Roses stuff. And none of this is suggestive of a one-to-one correlation with any particular mythology. Um, it could just be he's he's bringing in Lovecraft in the same way that he's bringing in rock bands that he like likes. You know? Yeah, Lovecraft is definitely going to be an influence of his. So this might be his own way of calling uh, calling that. And also, as you mentioned, I think in maybe the the last one we did, um, he likes to flesh out the worlds a lot. So like, if he does have other cultures, he would like to give them their own little bit of lore and mythology. Mm. He's not. He's certainly not tied to exploring that and bringing all these myths together. You know, he's mostly telling the story of Westeros. Um, but so, but anyway, you could be right. And the whole uh, deep ones and stuff happening in the water, and specifically uh, a lot of the stuff with the drowned god. This could be building something very big. Mm. It's just not something uh, that's fully <laughs> on my radar yet. Yeah, yeah, of course not. Um, well, I think that you. You share that with a lot of readers. I I did note that when Jojen is pressing Bran about his dream, you know, Bran is kind of resisting talking about his own dreams. He's a little bit embarrassed to talk about it. And he says, did you dream of a lizard lion? Mm. And then 
he says, did you dream of summer? And it seems to me that, and it would make sense that, you know, if you've got green seniors among the Kranich men, maybe they do warg into lizard lions, which I'm I'm just taking as another name for like a crocodile or an alligator. I, I don't know how you're reading that. I, that was a strange one, right? Because like Jojen's really pushing him. And then um, Bran quickly tries to change the subject. He's like, you know, um, I'm tired of talking about crows. Let's talk about wolves or lizard lions. And then have you ever hunted one, Mira? And then she answers him. She's like, oh, they live in the water in slow streams and deep swamps. So like she's happy to almost change conversation with him. Yeah. But then Jojen immediately jumps back into it and uh, asks, you know, did you dream of a lizard lion? And then so it was a strange one. Like it was a strange exchange. I actually have to say, I didn't really buy it. I didn't understand why Bran wasn't more keen to discuss this. Like, he's been having these dreams. He's been having these drafts from Mr. Lewin to try and uh, suppress his, his dreams, mm. but that hasn't been working. And then he meets Jojen and Mira, and he immediately has a great rapport with them. They love the wolves. Jojen has all this information that explains a lot of things. So why, when Jojen is asking him about the wolf dreams, why does he get so angry and defensive? I, I found that a strange thing. Maybe well, he does. He does talk about that in the sense that he says he doesn't want to remember his dreams. He thinks that if he can just forget about them, mm. maybe he'll stop having them. Yeah, he does explicitly say that if I forget them, which of, go away it, or interestingly enough, you know, it's it's the opposite, right? <laughs> Yeah. You have to talk about your trauma in order to, you know, not relive it, right? So But it's probably only two chapters two brand chapters ago where he wants to escape into his dreams, right? He's like, Oh, the dreams are better because here I can run around and uh, I can do woof. Yeah. So it just is a very sharp change. It's all of a sudden like now he's got the sort of support and he's got right. the everything. It's like why is he so why does it make him so angry? And like I just thought that was a very strange um exchange and i didn't i felt i personally didn't really buy it which is a uh, weird usually especially on a reread i find i find motivation places i hadn't expected or you know things that were previously foreshadowed and it's like oh yeah that makes sense now whereas here i'm reading and i was like this seems really almost out of character to me now again he's just like a eight or nine year old boy i think he's just turned nine at this point and he doesn't want to discuss something and fair enough. That's it. You know, we'll talk about it later on. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I, I hadn't thought about that. I guess the way I read it was his dreams scare him. He's a boy who feels like he's trying to be a man, you know? Yeah. I'm, I don't want to talk about my, you know, bad dreams are kid stuff. I, I want you to look at yeah. me as the Lord of Winterfell, not, not an eight year old boy. I mean that's kind of how I read it, but you're you're absolutely right that he looks forward to these wolf dreams that he has, and he's just at the point of discussing stuff with Jojen and Amira that's like making sense to him. It's like it seems like the perfect time to go even deeper, mm. and then he just gets very like out of character, angry. <laughs> well, and and it's a it's a it's a shift. It's a plot point shift mm. because this is the first time we see that. Summer's almost acting like his id. Like Summer's kind of taking on all of his sort of like like impulsiveness. Yeah. Bran feels anger. He feels attacked or he feels frustrated or whatever. But he can restrain himself in a way that Summer cannot. And it's mm, almost yeah. like he's he's reaching his anger is reaching out through Summer, right? In in a way that really makes explicit the connection 
the waking connection yeah um between bran and summer i think as well actually to maybe go back a little bit when i said um he does get frightened because when he starts thinking about the dream and particularly flying, he thinks of the golden man, which is mm-hmm. Jamie pushing him out the window and he doesn't remember mm-hmm. how he fell. He remembers he never fell. So he thinks it's weird that he fell. And then I think there is some point in this where he remembers the golden man. That's where he starts getting frightened. So maybe that is why he gets angry and he wants to get out of the conversation because he's got this trauma that he's been trying to suppress. Right. And I think that there is a discussion of memory and I think that it's ambiguous. Does he not want to remember the dream or does he not want to remember the event that triggers the dream? Yeah, I think I guess it is kind of the event and he's still even he hasn't associated the golden man. This is, I think, the second time in this book that he mentions that that, uh, without realizing it's Jamie. Um, So, yeah, I guess it is. He doesn't want to revisit that trauma. It's not so much the actual dream or the wolf dreams it's more the um what where where it stemmed from all right so notable introductions in this chapter uh we hear the term green dreams for the first time we hear the the term green sight for the first time and we hear uh the first mention of what the valerian link symbolizes on the maester's chain for the first time mm. and i thought that was an interesting little window into the citadel yeah me too it also poses a question it's like did he forge that link himself in which case can maesters still forge valerian steel mm-hmm. or do they like melt down do they have some like melted pot of valerian steel swords <laughs> and armor that they use to forge links if they've messed up magic enough <laughs> mm-hmm. all right so again we're talking about magic, right? So <laughs> there's, there's limits to how much how much we can. Say. I think that the issue with Valyrian steel is um, that when you are crafting a blade, it has to be spellbound. Mm. In one of the earliest chapters of uh, you know when we talk about ice, we learn that the craft of creating a Valyrian steel blade involves some kind of spell binding. I don't think that that means that those, that blade cannot be melted down and like just crafted into a link that you wear around your neck. No, um, it definitely could be melted down and crafted into link around your neck because you can be crafted, melted down and crafted into other swords without spells. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, exactly. And the question is, did that process involve spell binding? Yeah. And if so, maybe the magic loses a particular kind of property. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but there is a sense in which that craft has been lost, lost to common knowledge. But it seems like a rare maester thing. So maybe the maesters still have this information. They just don't use it. That was a sort of uh, the line I was going, the way I was going. Oh, I see. Sure. So sure, like sure. maesters who've dabbled, maesters who've dabbled in that actually uh-huh. can still forge Valyrian steel weapons. It's just quite rare. Most maesters right. don't. No. I guess here's a here's a question, an unanswerable question. Uh, now that ice has been, you know, forged into two different swords, do these swords have magical properties anymore? Well, is the magical property or is the spell just to like forge in the first place, and you know, to actually get the uh, steel, and then like once you can melt it, you can make whatever you want. You can make a helmet out of it, but uh, to get it actually that uh, that alloy. Does that uh-huh. require a spell? That's how I. Or is the spell total bullshit? It's like yeah, exactly. it's like v- Rolor. It's like there is some kind of fire magic that you can tap into, but you know who knows if there's an actual Rolor? Uh, you know maybe these 
spellbinders are you know doing hocus pocus, but there's actually some kind of property within the metal itself that does the magic. Yeah, I think Martin mentioned that he based the idea off the Damascus steel, which is like we don't know how that was made. That practice has been lost. So um, ah, I think it's probably as a as good an idea as there is no spell, but just that people <laughs> who can't do it, they're like, ah, oh, those Valerians must have using spells again. <laughs> the only uh, way they can do yeah, this. interesting, interesting. Um, <clears throat> All right, so we... notable differences with the show. Um, yeah, none of this is in the show. Uh, because <laughs> Bran doesn't meet Jojen and Mira until he's escaped Winterfell and is on oh, his way north. That's right. I've forgotten that. So none of this, none of this could happen. Um, but of course, you know, Jojen does eventually explain, uh, you know, Bran's dreams to him and whatnot. Um, I have a few other notes if you don't mind if you've got a few minutes. One Absolutely. is very minor. Um, old man, old man calling Jojen little grandfather. Thoughts on that? <laughs> <laughs> well, and it also gives you a sense that um, Jojen kind of presents as, you know, we said he had a different relationship to time, right? Yeah. And it's almost like. He's been cursed with knowledge that kind of robbed him of his childhood or something. Yeah. I mean, that that's kind of the sense that I got. I just love that Oldan calls him Little Grandfather. Oldan <laughs> is like, you know, the best character we know who we almost never meet. Like, she's only in, like, Bran and John's thoughts mostly. And she's there. She was in the feast last time. But we almost never interact with her. Right. Maybe a little bit in the Game of Thrones. But now it's and always And really, like, oh, we I'm... hear tell. I mean, we hear tell of Nan more than we actually see her. Yeah, that's in, what I mean. In the, yeah. On the page, right? So um, so I thought that was great. Um, what about Jojen saying that he had some fever and he almost died and that's what gave him the green dreams and then Bran had this accident where he can no longer walk and that's what gave him the powers. Uh, Did you read that like you have to have some trauma or physical uh, disability or at least some kind of that's massive... That's fascinating. I mean, I did note that it, he called it the grey water th- uh, fever or whatever. Mm. I think that the the area that they're their little hut floats their domicile i don't know they call it a castle but i I mean i'm imagining a little you know something made of reeds that floats around i think it's called gray water where they they roam over there yeah so that's it suggests to me that there's something sacred about the fever itself Oh, I didn't think that into it. I just assumed because they're living in a bog, there's some brutal fever. Uh-huh. And if you have some like near-death experience as a child, you can uh, that can help, I don't know, open your third eye or help right. you become a green seer somehow. Well, I mean, clearly, I mean, I, in disability studies, we we call this the super crip device, where mm-hmm. it's like, you know, Professor Xavier... Oh yeah, he has you know he has he has a magical brain because <laughs> his legs don't work. You know you you see this. Uh, it's very tropey. Yeah, to give uh, you know special senses to blind people. You know that kind of thing. I hadn't thought about Jojen in those terms, but now that you mention it, it, it seems pretty tropey. I suppose it was more than near death experience than the disability. Jojen doesn't have any disability from that. I guess maybe he's a bit 
is he a bit sickly or something because of that? We don't know. Oh, I guess you're right. But uh, it's more that they have this near-death experience, and then they... Because uh, Bran wasn't expected to survive, and then survived and is seemingly more powerful uh, than the other Starks. Um, and Jojen has this near-death experience, and then that's what gave him the green dreams. How much do you know about uh, Bloodraven? <sighs> I mean... Do we know if he ever had a, a near-death, near-death experience? experience? I don't know. I'd have to... Yeah, I'd have to check the wiki on that. I, I don't know either. I mean, I, I don't I don't have anything in mind. I, I just, I'm blanking on whether that actually might apply. Yeah, it's worth checking out, certainly. But um, definitely it was something uh, I noticed that, like, um, that it was a bit odd. Like, it wasn't like Jojen was born with this. It sort of came to him. Or could it be that you could say, like, different people have varying degrees of this talent, but it takes some mm. kind of liminal experience to open up the third eye. And yeah, and then he he discusses the third eye a bit, and he's like, the third eye allows you to see, I don't know, beyond the sea or beyond the far south. He's This third eye thing, I think when I've previously read the books, I kind of maybe assumed the third eye was just like access to the weirwood net or something like this. Whereas now reading Jojen's description here, it's something different. I, I don't know. Is, is it a green dream? Is that what he means? Or is it even something more powerful? Well, I think he says, I mean, he's he's trying to get Bran to access it when he's awake. He says, when you're asleep, your third eye flutters open. And that's why you can connect with Summer. And he's trying to say, you need to open it when you're awake so that you can see these things. Mm. Um, and... The sense is that, you know, you're not just going to see things in the future or the past. You can also see things at great distance. But of course, heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or see things that are, are not visible to the naked eye. I I do think that there's something about Bran. You know, Bran has a natural talent for this, but he needs to be taught yeah. how to use it. And I think as long as, you know, narratologically, I think as long as Bran doesn't quite know how to use his powers it's better for the story in in the same way that as long as danny does not necessarily know how to use her dragons to great effect it's better for the story (laughs) yeah for sure um and then the wolf in chains or the idea of bran being chained and jojen seeing this is the chains just bran's reluctance to use this or is the chain something is the chain is the chains winterfell holding him back or being south of the wall? I was reading it as... Um, I mean, you, there's two ways to read this from my point of view. And the first is that it is Winterfell. He needs to go north. If he can get to White Tree, it'll unlock his ability or whatever. He can finally fly. Mm. But you have that sort of conceptual connection to the Maester's chain. And, oh, and Lewin is... Because Lewin's sort of like proto-modern sensibility, Luna is really holding Bran back from accessing his third eye. I can't believe I didn't make the link between Luna's chain and the chain mentioned two pages earlier. <laughs> and at the very end of the chapter, Bran goes, Luna has the right of it. Yeah, yeah he, ble- he thinks that Lu- because he, because of his view of his father and because his father trusted Luan, he thinks that Luan must be right. And we know that Lewin's wrong. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, that's uh okay. So the maester's chain is holding Bran down. Okay, that's interesting. Well, and that's, uh... what is and Lewin has expressed um directly that he thinks that Bran would make a great maester, and I think that mm. Bran is kind of like I I know that I can't be a knight. Yeah. Um, I trust Maester Lewin. He's kind of become my guide in this. I think that he's imagining himself going south instead of going north. Mm. Um, yeah. Or at least maybe the story is just kind of reminding us Lewin is pushing him in one direction and Jojen's pushing him in the other. Indeed, yeah. Um, do we need to discuss poor, poor Lady Hornwood? <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've talked about Lady Hornwood the last two times I, I did, Brand, but I feel like maybe we should wrap up um, yeah. how tragic this story is because from one perspective she was legally married to the Bolton bastard well if, if you're against your will is it still legal in western i mean that i mean that is lewin <laughs> lewin actually takes that point of view and says look mm. you, a vow made at at knife point is not a vow at all but the other perspective on this is she said the words in front of a heart tree and in front of a, a septon. Uh, so all gods were witnesses. She signed the papers to give over to the land of the Boltons. And that's going to have legal weight. And and on top of that, this marriage was consummated. And so there's no even suggestion that... Do we know um, it was consummated? Or maybe at this point we don't. But, uh, well, we don't know. But from in, in the chapter, it says that uh, that she was bedded on her wedding night in front of witnesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, yeah. Right. Um, and it, it just shows you the, the barbarian. You know, we were talking in a previous conversation about the civility uh, north of the wall. Mm. And we you know, we can see how barbaric, you know, these southern folk are, even though they, they seem to think that they have the um, monopoly on civility or something. <laughs> but she's, yeah, Lady Hornwood is sort of a tragic cautionary tale for people like Sansa and people like Jane Poole. Um, You know, this is sort of reminds us how badly these things can go. Yeah. Especially for women with lands. Yeah. It's uh, it's quite brutal. And it's interesting how I think it's the previous chapter, maybe it's even two chapters ago where um, they're discussing what might happen and they discuss how the Mandalays want their lands and the Boltons want their lands and maybe Ramsay try and marry her uh, or ma- maybe Ramsay try and take her mm. by force or something. And Roderick says he can look all he wants, but if he tries anything, there will be severe consequences. And then in this chapter, Roderick goes there and can't do anything because he doesn't have the strength and the Mandalays have occupied her castle mm. and the Boltons are, they're fighting the Boltons in, I think, uh, the forest outside her lands. And you're just like, oh, well, Roderick really wanted to do something there, but had absolutely no power to do anything. And this brings us to the moral of the story. Roderick should have married Lady Hornwood. She made an advance on him because they were they were suggesting a marriage agreement. And she yeah. says, I'm not going to marry again unless it's to you. And then he kind of eschews her. He but should have he accepted to... the proposal. He He would be a lord. He'd have lands. He would save her life. But then he asked her to dance later, 
uh-huh. that, I think that same evening, and she turned him down and ran away. He so, missed, like, missed his chance. <laughs> she, she didn't give him much opportunity there, did she? You missed, you missed your chance, man. You you got to strike where the iron's hot. God, yeah. I, I just think sometimes, like, the violence and cruelty Martin puts in is a bit off-putting. There is, like, you know, there's all the general rape and incest like martin really loves incest more than most authors it's, have ever it's read. really disconcerting yeah <laughs> it's and, really then disconcerting. This, and then anything ramsey does in this chapter is you're like this is just like i mean i know he's got a sort of uh, violence is quite uh, something he does he seems as quite like functional to the story or something but it's just so brutal so frequently so brutal and in addition to that I think, according to one perspective, they think that the Bolton bastard is dead. That's right. So actually, Roger comes back and thinks he shot um, the Bolton bastard with a crossbow. He tried to escape, and he took Reek uh, as prisoner to for rob the judge. That's right. And Reek is being blamed for some of what happens. Some of what happened to Lady Hornwood. Yeah. Um. You, you know, suggesting that his. He's not a reliable narrator. He doesn't understand that, you know, this man has probably been tortured into submission himself. And he thinks he's killed the Bolton bastard because he saw him ride off, you know, with several arrows. Yeah. Clearly, Roderick is not to be trusted. <laughs> well, <laughs> this, so is all, be, this is all. This is all. I'm going to blame this all on Roderick. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Roderick. <laughs> 